Hey everyone, before we get to the meat of the podcast, I've got a few con announcements and these have been updated from what you've been normally hearing. First, if you're going to Gen Con, so are Jeff Greiner, Rudy Basso, and I. If you want to see us, we're going to be doing a live roundtable recording at 5 p.m. the Friday of Gen Con. That's 5 p.m. on Friday, August 5th in the Crown Plaza in Grand Central Ballroom D. Look for it when the Gen Con event schedule begins. We're going to be joined by fans and favorite panelist Liz Tice and maybe some others TBA keep listening we'll tell you who's going to be there details on a hangout after the live recording where you can meet us maybe have a few drinks maybe play a few games those are coming then on Saturday at 4 p.m. of Gen Con, Rudy, Jeff, and I are going to run an adventure that Rudy and I are writing we're calling it the Tome Show Epic the actions of one table will affect the others and vice versa. People are going to be switching tables, running around, and having a blast, killing an enormous living dungeon. Check that out. There's limited space. I think there's only 18 seats. So it's first come, first serve. Look for that also when the Gen Con event schedule drops. I can't wait to meet you all in Indianapolis. Then, maybe you can't make it to Gen Con, or maybe you can, but you can't get enough of us. I wanted to tell you that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. Roll20Con is an online convention run by my favorite virtual table. It's going to be 24 hours starting on June 3rd, and it doesn't have just me, James D'Amato, Adam Coble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser, Robinson, Margaret Crone, and so many other RPG superstars are going to be there. I will be playing 5th edition D&D with Rudy Basso and some other awesome folks at 5am Pacific Time on the Twitch stream. Come play games with us and watch us be awesome early in the morning. You don't even need to take off work. You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to the Tome Show but paying nothing for it and you want to help support us, go give us a great rating. It takes less than a minute of your time. We do shout-outs to listeners who give us a great rating on the air. I'll read it at least one new five-star rating verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Here are the words of Freemy64, entitled, The Tome Show Continues to Be One of the Best. Freemy64 says, The Tome Show Continues to Be One of the Best Places to Get D&D News. Keep up the good work. Short and sweet, I like that. Freemy64, you continue to be one of the most awesome reviewers. You keep up the good work. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. It's real easy. Just go to our website first, click on the banners, and then shop as you normally would. It doesn't cost you anything but an extra click, and it throws a couple of copper pieces into the Tome Show's belt pouch to help us buy new equipment, fun new shows, all that good stuff. 
All right, everyone. Today, we're talking about a Magic the Gathering setting for Dungeons & Dragons and the announcement that Acquisitions Incorporated is going to be a web series from Wizards of the Coast. After that, we've got an interview with game designer James Hake about his latest DMs Guild product, Gem Dragons of Faerun, that he put out with Cobalt Press. Let's meet our panel, and we'll kick things off with our get-to-know-you question... What is the best Magic the Gathering card? Alex Basso, welcome back to the roundtable. My opinion, the best Magic the Gathering card uh, is a legendary creature, human soldier, Darien, King of Keldor. Uh, so <laughs> I, in Magic the Gathering, I was really into making white soldier decks, which are... They're basically decks that you have really weak soldiers, but as you put more and more out, they tend to buff each other. So you know, you go from one terrible soldier who has really terrible stats to suddenly he's a you know a monster because he has like a general with him and a king who all make him better fighters. Uh, so Darian, the king of Keldor, was really cool because when you put him on the field, uh, if you the player get hit for any type of damage, uh, you put equal number of one one white soldier tokens onto the field. So if I got hit for seven. All of a sudden, there's seven soldiers on the field, and of all the buffs, that would be like you're basically like raising an army instantly. So he was a lot of fun, and I only had one of them because he was kind of expensive, and I didn't really spend much money on Magic. But whenever I'd play him, my friends knew, you know, they they really couldn't hit me until he was removed from the field. <laughs> nice, nice. That is uh, that's one of those cards that when it comes out of the deck, everybody's like, oh. He's so cheap, that card. God, yeah, I hate that yeah, card. It's just like a, he's a game-winning card. Yeah. So he's yeah. pretty great. Nice, nice. I like that a lot. And uh, we have some new people on the roundtable today. Uh, first is Dan Elwell. Dan, welcome to the roundtable. Uh, before we get to your favorite magic card, uh, why don't you tell the people out there a little bit about your background and experience with gaming? Well, sure. And hi, everybody. Um, so pleased to be here. Um, the experience with with gaming goes back way back to the ancient era of original D D, back in the late 70s and i've been playing D D and other rpgs really ever since then so i am a grognard um as it were <laughs> um uh that's can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on who i'm playing with though at the at the table so it's it's always interesting though uh, i love to play with all types so um, but moving on to the question. Yes, um, yes. What, what is, is your the, favorite magic card? Yeah, what is my favorite magic card? And I would have to say I have no idea. Uh, magic is one of those games which I really haven't played much of, uh, actually. Although uh, it's it's interesting. Um, way back in the in the mid nineties, uh, when magic was first introduced, uh, my first exposure to magic was actually friend of mine came back from Gen Con and said, hey, I learned this great new game that uh, I played with Peter Atkinson the, at the time, the, the kind of the head honcho at Wizards no of the way. Coast, who, That's awesome. who had, who had uh, kind of found this guy who had this card game. And, uh, and at that point, there were no card games. And, and we were like, oh, like, he, he uh, was showing it to us. And we were like, oh, like, huh, that'll never fly. <laughs> well, looks how long we, how wrong we were. <laughs> yeah, several millions of dollars poured into that hobby later. Uh, here yeah. we are, right? <laughs> Just kind of a fringe idea that uh, that would never would catch on, you know, because at the time it was, you know, D&D &D was where it was at. 
And that was even before uh, Wizards had had acquired uh, TSR. I think they used the proceeds from Magic to acquire TSR. So yes. go figure. Yeah, yeah, that's how they were able to to buy stuff. I know um, Wolfgang Bauer had said when he first went to work at Wizards of the Coast, they hadn't acquired TSR yet, and they were trying real hard to make a card based Magic the Gathering RPG. Um, you know, tabletop RPG that uh, that people would play. And then they bought TSR and they sort of scrapped the project. And they were like, we got D&D. We don't care about that anymore. So, um, yeah, it would have been interesting to see that come to fruition. And we kind of have that now. But before we get to that topic, there is another new person at the roundtable. And that new person, just to make things extra confusing for you, the listener, is also named Daniel. Daniel Franco, welcome to the roundtable. Why don't you tell the people a little bit about your history with gaming? Boy, chummers. Um, well, I first got into gaming actually from Shadowrun, uh, which is fantasy cyberpunk for people who don't know. Um, they came out with a, when I was real young, they came out with a Genesis game that had the cover of the second edition of the game. And I walked into a comic shop looking at the second edition book thinking it's a strategy guide for the Sega Genesis game. So when I bought it and brought it home, I was very confused of all the rules. Because it had said nothing about the game. And then later on I figured out, oh, it's like some kind of role-playing game. And then met a friend in uh, in high school when I was a junior and got me into D&D. And that was around 2000. And back to the question of Magic, I as well have zero experience with Magic the Gathering. In fact, my first and only experience actually playing it was in high school. And that was in RFTC. And I basically played a game and they narrated how they beat me and kind of laughed which i did my only like non-nerd like jock uh mode i was just like you know if you nerds you know your stupid card game not gonna play that again so and never touched it (laughs) oh wow wow well uh so so since we've got uh, a couple of people with varied experience i figured i'd share my experience with magic as well by telling you guys that my favorite magic card uh and i don't even know if this is still around because it's been 12 years since i played uh magic the gathering but uh was i had a killer black and white pestilence deck you know what i'm talking about alex basso uh, i do not oh i do uh, not so pestilence- i played with like four people and we all had our own little self-contained <laughs> you know meta so i don't know much of the Sorry, the popular magic oh, So Pestilence was a black card, and uh, every time, every black mana you tapped and put into it, it dealt one damage to all creatures and all players. Um, but then if you had a... Uh, the reason you needed your white deck was because you needed that uh, protection circle against black. So then you could pour your white mana into protecting yourself from your own damage, and then dealing damage to everybody else. Um, and then later on on Urza's armor came out and you could have an all black pestilence deck. You didn't need to have the white in it anymore because uh, that artifact was great. Anyway, I digress. Um, I can hear the people who don't play magic falling asleep already. Let's talk about why we are talking about magic, the gathering today. Um, so 
this free 38-page PDF from Wizards of the Coast came out that combines Magic the Gathering and D&D in an excellent way because it brings the world of Magic the Gathering plane shift Zendikar uh, to D&D. Um, so it's a great little supplement um, that gives you a lot of new stuff, plenty of new fluff, very story-focused. Um, it gives you uh, new races and and spins on like, hey, this is how humans would work in, in this place. This is how these would work. Advice on running monsters, new monster stat blocks. So there's a lot of really cool stuff in here uh, that that is cool. The the goblins in Magic the Gathering are very different than D&D goblins, and they're a playable race now. Um, you know, this was actually quite a, a big update uh, uh, to see, especially because we haven't seen a lot of stuff like this for 5th edition yet. I'm interested to hear your thoughts overall on this before we delve into the specifics. Um, so Alex Basso, as the resident uh, Magic player, uh, probably the, the one with the most recent experience of all of us, um, what do you think of uh, Plane Shift Zendikar overall? Um, does it make you excited to play in a world like this? Do you want to bring in some of the options uh, in into a, another world and use them there. Uh, sort of, what is your overall feeling with this document? I mean, first off, I just got to say, I've played, I mean, I've played a decent amount of Magic, probably for about a year, and just reading this makes me think, I knew nothing about the war of that game. <laughs> and I'm sure, I have a feeling that most of the people who have played Magic know nothing about it. Like, right. I didn't even know the main world was called Zendikar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I just knew there were a bunch of cool creatures and there's five mana. There's right, five mana types. Right. <laughs> so it is, I, I liked, you know, to an extent reading, uh, you know, about the history and the world. Uh, honestly, the, the my favorite thing from it were the races. Uh, mm -hmm. I really, really like the goblins. I like goblins that aren't necessarily straight evil. The goblins in this book are very inquisitive and for the most part, uh, you know, kill themselves a lot accidentally, but they're not <laughs> just horrible, mean creatures. So I really like that take on it. Uh, the world itself also, I, if you make any world and you include expeditionary adventure guilds or houses or whatever, and, you know, make actually a cool world to go adventure, which this one is, there's a lot of like old ruins and, you know, lost civilizations that you can check out. Like you have me, I just, something about just adventure guilds, especially if they're competing with each other, just brings me in. So that's something I also really enjoy about the world. Besides that, though, I think they really dropped it on the creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, just because if there's anything people from who play Magic the Gathering are going to know, it's the creatures, because that's, you know, 90% of the game or whatever. Sure. And pretty much every creature in this is just like, uh, you can just use this D&D &D, uh, <laughs> creature to substitute, which makes sense so they don't have to, you know, spend too much time on this. But it is a little disappointing that there's really not that many stat blocks as you go through the creatures. It's just a lot of like, this is what this does. And this D and D monster manual monster replaces it. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there is a fair amount of that kind of thing going on where it's like, you know, just use this, just use this, which is so interesting because the races, they really gave you a lot of, racial options, you know, vampires in there, uh, you know, they, they got some new humans and there's certainly some, some good stuff, uh, you know, stat blocks and things to be had and plenty of 
fluff and flavor to bring into your world. Uh, it's kind of cool that there's a less epic Kraken, I guess, would, would be the way I would say it. You know, the, the challenge rating isn't as high and that kind of thing. So, well, uh, it's good to hear your sort of overall thoughts. Uh, Dan Elwell, what were your overall thoughts on uh, this PDF? Well, I, I kind of liked it. I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, the idea of having a lot of story uh, that you can kind of bring to bear. And if you want to run adventures in Zendikar, I think you have a lot of what you need. I mean, you can use the existing monsters uh, uh, that they provide, or you can bring in, you know, monsters from the monster manual and reskin them as appropriate. So you can keep your sort of magic-y flavor. Um, and, and then you can use it to, to run adventures, you know, and know nothing about, you know, the magic, uh, rules, if you were, and, and just use it as an adventure setting, just as you would any other published adventure setting. I mean, obviously they're, they're giving you, uh, just enough to scratch the surface. So, I mean, I think you, if you want to do a long campaign, you're going to have to, to do, uh, some work on it to ex- extend and expand what they give you. But, um, but I think that there's a lot of potential. Uh, the other aspect to it that I thought was really interesting when I read it was that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here that I can steal and pop into my own home <laughs> yeah. D&D campaign and, and do all sort of stuff with it and not have anything to do with the, with the, the land of, or the setting of Zendikar um, and just use it in my D&D campaign um, and, and, you know, kind of surprise, you know, uh, the uh, players with, you know, goblins that are not traditional goblins, for example. So, yeah, I definitely very pleased with it. Obviously, there's there's a lot more that could be done, but hey, it's free, and uh, you know, I'm all for free stuff. So, yeah, yeah, and that's I I felt the same way. Like, man, this is not only is this stuff uh, great to to have for free, it's so rippable. You don't necessarily need to set it in Zendikar, right? If you want to use this stuff, even if you want to use the story ideas that are in there, like you said, you know, make your goblins different. Um, you know, there's a merfolk race in here. Uh, maybe you got a, you're running an aquatic campaign and now your, your players can uh, play this merfolk race. So there is definitely a lot of possibilities in here. Another thing that I really love about this is the art um you know obviously magic the gathering has no shortage of great art um to go along with the game and uh, this is one of the most art filled free pdfs that i've ever seen a, a game give out um which is really cool so uh so well, yeah i was excited to yeah, see I, that on the on that same note the uh you know, you can now use your your magic decks as visual aids for all the monsters that you're <laughs> going to throw at your players so yeah, that's to- I didn't even think of that, but that's totally true that instead of, you know, holding up the the monster manual and trying to cover up the stats and pass it around, you can just whip out a card and pass it around to everybody. So, uh Daniel Franco, uh what did you think of this sort of overall? What were your overall impressions? Well, the art is great. It is looks really great. Uh I started reading it and I thought I sound dissenting. I'm like, "Cool. Forgotten Realms." I'm like, all right, sounds like Forgotten Realms. Then I read Houses, a little bit of Everon, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, it's like, okay. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, the races are cool. Uh, they got definitely the Goblin tribes is interesting to see for the Elves. There's actually a sub race that has a, they have a strength, but like a strength bonus, which is mm-hmm. that's different. Yeah. So it looks fine. I mean, I do like that they're you know you substitute this, so it's 
you know, it's not going to try to be this whole, whole other thing. You can just kind of the piecemeal and, you know, just use this monster, use that monster. It does make it things a lot easier. So people don't have to, you know, when they're prepping for a game, they don't have to go back and forth or try to figure out what this monster is like. It's just, hey, use this. Okay. Totally. Well, and it does make sense, you know, from a business perspective, it really is smart to to see them like Magic the Gathering is the real moneymaker at Wizards of the Coast, right? And so it makes sense like, hey, we kind of want to grow this other thing that we're doing. What's a way we can get a bunch of people who are already coming to us for one thing to be interested in another. And I think, you know, obviously this benefits us as Dungeons and Dragons players. And I think, you know, will there be maybe some people who read this and they're like, oh man, I want to play Magic the Gathering? Uh, yes, but I think it's probably its main purpose is to get people who are just playing Magic maybe a little bit more interested in D&D, a little bit more thinking about, like, when they look at their cards, oh, man, this this goblin looks really cool. I wonder what his story is. Now you can find out. Now you can create that story. Will this get Magic the Gathering players to come over and play D&D? I don't know necessarily in droves, but even if it gets a couple, you know, um, it's pretty cool uh, that, that they went ahead and put all the time and effort in to do this. And I think we... Obviously, for, for something that's free, we appreciate it. Uh, so why don't we get into kind of the nitty-gritty? Uh, there are a ton of races in this thing. Um, you know, we said there's new humans. There's a race called the Core. Um, there are merfolk. There are vampires. There are goblins. There are uh, elves. You know, so there's that's quite a few things you're getting right there, right up top, uh, before we even delve into some of the monsters. So what did you guys think races? Uh, what were some of your favorites? Some of your least favorites. Uh, and Dan Elwell, let's start with you. I, I like the idea of, of merfolk as a race. I mean, the underwater settings uh, you know, has, haven't really been explored that much in any of the D&D published material. I don't think we've ever had uh, an aquatic race that's really been fleshed out and has been playable race, with maybe the exception of the sea elves back in, like, first edition. But... Um, so, so that was really intriguing. I, you know, I think that uh, that you could kind of use that as a springboard to do some really interesting undersea adventures uh, that uh, maybe in a way that we've never really seen before. So that was that was the, the one thing that really no- I noticed. Nice, yeah. Would uh, undersea adventures would be really really cool? I think you know you hear people talk about pirate campaigns and things like that. I would love to see somebody do something under the water. Rich Howard. I'm talking to you if you're listening. So, um, you know, get that get that undersea campaign going. Uh, is there anything that you thought was uh, was maybe weaker or you didn't like about the races section, Dan? Um, not specifically in terms of races that I didn't like. I mean, I, you know, I think that the that the races presented in this supplement, you know, as we said before, are, are have a little bit of a different flavor than the standard D and D sort of Tolkien-esque archetypes that we, we, we see so often. So, you know, it's definitely got a different feel for the, for like the elves and the, and, and, and the goblins and, and some of the other races. Some of the races are completely new to, to the kind of the D and D motif altogether. And so I think there's a lot of potential uh, around bringing in some completely new stuff, kind of like, you know, back when, 
Eberron first came out and then we had Warforged and Shifters and so forth. There's some of that same kind of, kind of, hey, new vibe, hey, I can do something really different, play something, a really different character than I've ever played before. So uh, be interesting to see if ever any of this stuff ever works its way into any sort of organized play kind of environment if they decide to do a, a Zendikar season in D&D Adventures that would, that would be amusing <laughs> yeah yeah that would be really really cool um, and you know I, I do think it's it's interesting to see something new like you said kind of like the Warforged uh, something people haven't really thought of yet coming in and, and fitting it in this fantasy world framework uh, so what about you uh, Daniel Franco uh, races uh, likes dislikes I like the goblins the fact that they actually put more thought into it in the past, it's always just like, and they're, you know, they have, you know, one, two, three, that's what they can do. And that's it. This one's actually, they have tribes, you know, and different things. So I do like that actually put into it a little more love. So that actually cool. It makes it more of a, like an appealing decision instead of it being like a joke of, Hey, for, you know, for fun, let's just, you know, play a bunch of goblins. Like this is actually like, I'm going to play a goblin for race and like any race dislikes, I really don't. Um, I'll probably grief characters who want to play vampires if this becomes organized play. Just give them a hard time. Like, how oh, do you sparkle? You know, and just Indeed. a little bit. <laughs> you know, and just be, are you going to be like moody and gothic? So, but otherwise it's, so let me ask you a question. Is that because specifically these vampires make you feel like these are more sparkly or is it just, you would do that if they were playing any kind of vampire? Any kind of vampire. Gotcha. <laughs> Alex Basso, what about you? Uh, racial likes and dislikes. Yeah, so I mean, I spoke on the goblins before, so I won't cover that again. I actually also really like the core, which, as far as I know, I've, I honestly don't remember mm -hmm. them at all when playing Magic. So I don't know if they're a recent race, or maybe I just never got any of their cards. But I, I, I really like that their main way of communication is sign language. I think mm -hmm. that's really cool. Especially if you're in a party with two cores and you can make fun of the rest of your party members uh, without them knowing. <laughs> uh, and it, I, at first I saw they, they have a really big emphasis on climbing. I'm like, that's kind of dumb. But then I saw a lot of the art in the book and that seems really useful to climb. Uh, yeah. So uh, They seem a little different than other races. I mean, they are humanoid, but they were the ones besides the goblins that most took, stood out to me. Mm -hmm. And I really don't have any dislikes. I mean, I guess kind of the vampires, because, mm -hmm. I don't know, vampires are lame. But <laughs> I, I do like that, at least these vampires, they're not, like, undead. There's, like, some eldritch curse that makes them vampires, and it's a little bit different. Like, everything in here, besides the humans, who are still just humans, has a little bit of a twist on what you expect, and I, I like that a lot. What I'm hearing a lot from you guys is like, eh, this is these are some solid races, and we don't have a lot of complaints, which is good. Um, you know that that again means that you're getting a lot out of a free supplement, right? Um, why don't we talk just a little bit about the bestiary, uh, Alex Bassa? You touched on it a lot. A lot of their their bestiary is, hey, replace this with this. Um, you know, in fact, there might be less stat blocks than there are new races, but they do cover a lot of. Of like this is how you would make this. This is how you would make this. This is how you would reskin this um, using existing creatures. Why don't we go around and we'll say our overall impressions of the creatures uh, in this bestiary? Um, was there anything that you you really really liked? Was there anything that you really disliked? Uh, and this time we'll start with you, Daniel Franco. 
Oh, nope. Everything, again, it's pulling from, just use this to use that in the monster manual. So it it looks good. looks pretty. So not really complaints. So yeah, yeah, for pass. sure, for sure. And one of the things that I like is that, um, you know, the few stat blocks they do have, uh, like we've got a level 13 and a level 10 and a level five in here, which is great because, you know, um, I, I like to see a few more higher level, uh, creatures being added to the game because the monster manual doesn't have as many of those. Um, so it's nice to, to see those things sort of getting beefed up a little bit. Uh, Alex Basso, what about you? Um, any Anything in particular other than what we've already talked about that you like or dislike from this creatures section? Let's see. It's two things I really like. I like that dragons are basically like, yeah, they're the same as Dungeons and Dragons dragons, except they're <laughs> stupider. Um, just take a dragon and set its intelligence to eight and you're good. Uh, I like that. I'm, I'm so used to dragons and fantasy being like these genius creatures that are, you know, masters of spells and stuff. And these are just kind of more beasts that can breathe fire. Uh, and I also like that the giants are uh, a lot more civilized and they're more tribal. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I like just because you're a big creature, a big humanoid doesn't mean you need to be stupid. So <laughs> it's always nice to say civilizations, I guess, even if they're more wild like and. Innate, based in nature than actually order. So, and, and dislikes. There was. I, I would have liked to see more stuff on angels, mm-hmm. uh, just because as as someone who played a lot of white in Magic: The Gathering, I've played a lot of angels. So to see them be, I think even less than a page. They're they're a pretty small section. It was kind of disappointing. I would have liked to see more yeah. more on that. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It would have been cool to uh, to maybe see a little bit more on the angels, especially because the monster manual only has three. Uh, but I guess the other thing is your players don't often spend a lot of time fighting angels uh, unless you're in a campaign where where that sort of thing is happening. Uh, you know, fourth edition was the exception because angels served all gods. Um, so it is it is definitely uh, a bummer. I, I wanted to see where was the Sarah angel. Right? Yeah. Right. That's a great point though, James. I did not even consider that. Yeah. Yeah, it was maybe like maybe that was the thinking was like, yeah, you're you're probably not gonna fight a lot of these, so we're not gonna spend too much time making these. Uh Dan Elwell, how about you? What do you think of the creatures section? Yeah, well I think you know my my thinking is probably similar to what Daniel was saying. Um what came out out of this was not so much, you know, a lot of new crunch in terms of you know stats for new types of monsters but really exercises and how you can reskin how you can adapt and and you know maybe adjust something here and there and get a completely different uh monster with respect to the story and that and that's really the takeaway is really a lot of this is about kind of telling telling different kinds of stories uh than maybe we've seen in the past and and using monsters in a different way um you know, and I think uh, you know, I think that's that's part and parcel with a lot of what Wizards is trying to do with D and D fifth edition is make things very story centric, um, and and get away from just reams and reams of stats that uh, that you can get lost in. So they're very being very consistent, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. They are still uh, even even in this supplement, right, continuing to put story first, um, which is the plan. That that's exactly what they wanted to do. So, you know, we definitely want to know what people out there think about the uh, Magic: The Gathering free PDF that brings Zendikar into D and D. Hit us up over at thetomeshow.com or at Facebook.com 
facebook.com slash the tome show and let us know what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions. Uh, moving on, guys, we're going to talk a little bit about the rise of actual play. Um, so Wizards of the Coast announced at PAX East that Acquisitions Incorporated is going to be a series. Acquisitions Incorporated, of course, being their, you know, um, live, uh, their actual play event that they do at all of the various PAX conventions. So yeah, it's the thing that they, they do with Patrick Rothfuss, Scott Kurtz, the Penny Arcade guys, um, Chris Perkins DMs, or, or usually does. So, you know, it's, it's really, really, uh, interesting to see them kick this off as a series. They've already got another series, Dice Camera Action, where Chris Perkins is, uh, running a bunch of players through Curse of Strahd on Twitch. Um, you know, they seem to be getting on this train of actual play being a great way to, uh, spread the, the gospel of D&D. Um, so before we start, my big question for you guys is, do you watch any actual play either on Twitch or YouTube or what have you, or do you listen to it maybe as, as a podcast? Um, is that something that you frequently do? Uh, I don't listen to a ton of them. I listen to, you know, God's Fall and I listen to the Adventure Zone and I've dabbled here and there listening to a couple of other ones. Um, but you know, those are kind of the, the big two that I listen to and I don't sit down and watch them, uh, as much as I should. You know, I catch episodes here and there. Oh, you gotta see this or whatever. Uh, and I watch Acquisitions Inc. Um, every year, uh, at PAX. Uh, I, I'm not there live, but I watch their live stream. Um, but anyway, I'm wondering, what are your guys' um, experience with that? Alex Basso, let's start with you. Uh, so I don't really listen to all that much uh, actual play. I definitely, I never watch it. Uh, for the most part, right now, I'll listen to The Adventure Zone. Like, whenever me and my brother go on a car ride, he, he likes to put that on. And they're pretty enjoyable, because I think they're really funny. Uh, and then a long time ago, when Acquisitions, Inc. first started, I, def I remember listening to their first like series or right, sit down yeah, event. Yeah, and that was before right. I actually had started playing D and D. So I think since I've actually started playing myself and you know we play every week, uh, it's not nearly as interesting to me. Uh, I think if I was not playing and I had a long gap between playing, I would be more interested in actually following one of these. So because they didn't you know they're they're pretty cool to actually you know some of the people on them are good role players. A lot of times they're they're really funny. Uh, but I, I get my fix through playing, so yeah, really yeah, it's true, it. and it's often you know the, the, they sometimes run for hours at a time, so it can be hard to n make the time to watch every week. You know, uh, Critical Role is often a, a much longer show, so to, to make the time to do that, I think, can be uh, difficult. Uh, what about you, uh, Daniel Franco? Uh, do you uh, watch or listen to any actual play? Uh, yes, I do. Li I listen to a lot of Penny Arcade. I said when it first started, um, I actually do like that a little bit better than the shows because listening it was easier. Because when I drive to work and whatnot, I do like to. I'm starting to watch them a lot more. A lot of times, that's I'm either with my kid, you know, just something I can kind of have on and I can listen to, but not, you know, put all my focus, my attention on. Or if I'm like playing Xbox, I'll can I'll just have it like another screen. I'll just kind of like hear it and I'll occasionally look and see. So um the one I listened to recently was Critical Role. They did a one shot with Pathfinder as the goblins. Actually pretty enjoyable to watch and listen to. I actually stopped playing for a second and like <laughs> the joke. So yeah, um again yeah more of distraction 
or when I'm driving to work or not. So more watching than listening. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's great. That's, uh, that's really, really awesome. I'm glad we have you on this panel today uh, to give us some opinions. Uh, uh, Dan, what about you? What's kind of your experience with uh, watching or listening to actual play? I haven't watched a lot um, mm-hmm. other than maybe, you know, a YouTube clip here and there. I, I, I did um, listen to the podcast that were on the Watsy feed when they rolled out fourth edition where they had Penny Arcade and, and Acquisitions Inc. Uh, kind of introducing fourth edition. I think they got Will Wheaton to play and Chris Perkins was DMing. And, and that was really, I, I followed that for, for a while. Um, I think they were doing one of the first published mods and I uh, really enjoyed that. Um, and then I kind of lost interest after a while. There's only so much of that before that I can take before I, my attention wanders. Um, of late, I've been following some of the live play stuff that the RPG Academy uh, puts out. It's another another uh, podcast that does a lot of live play in addition to other things. And uh, they've got a couple of couple of campaigns that they've been been live playing. And uh, and they're the nice thing about those guys is. That, they do a lot of live play and so they've kind of figured out how to do it in a way that's kind of engaging where they're still having fun playing the game, but you know, you don't get lost in, you know, kind of what's going on. They, they move it along and that's kind of the, 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 the hard part, right? You know, I mean, fundamentally this is a game that's meant to be played, you know, watching other people play it is maybe not as exciting, I think in the long run. So, I mean, I can take it in small doses, but yeah, I'm not going to sit and watch a four-hour, you know, campaign slot, you know, of, of say D and D Adventures League, you know, and and have any interest in watching more than a few minutes of it. So that's kind of my take on it. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that I mean, like I said, it sounds like we've got a lot of different perspectives on this once again, which is really great. Um, so. Then with the idea of Acquisitions, Inc., you know, um, if these are – it sounds like everybody at some point listened to the Penny Arcade podcast or, or watched it at PAX or whatever. If these are short and sweet, um, would you uh, – you know, let's say they're not four hours long. Let's say they, they cut them down. They're an hour each or they're a half hour each, although I think half hour would probably be pretty hard to do. Is this a series you think you would be interested in sitting down and watching or watching while you're doing something else? Uh, what do you think? Uh, Daniel, let's start with you. You're, you're sort of the one who is, sounds like is consuming the most actual play. Uh, is this a thing that you're planning on checking out? Sure. Um, I don't mind it. Um, I didn't catch the latest uh, packs uh, that they did, but yeah, definitely something that if I'm playing Fallout or something and like, oh, well, let's, you know, what's going on? So. Um, lately, they, it hasn't really grabbed my attention for PAX itself because, again, it's a little more theatrical and more just we're having kind of like a good time, and that's cool. But sometimes when I listen to podcasts, I kind of like to hear interpretation or cr- like crunching rules, at least a little bit, just in case if there's a rule that I've been running a while and maybe they do something differently that I'm like, oh, hey, maybe I should, you know, that, that's a good idea. Like I said, I might check it out, especially in hour bites. Easier to digest. So if I'm not really interested, I could be, oh, you know, never mind. So uh, these things are easy to walk away from, um, especially in their beginning stages, because you don't have a lot of time invested in earlier watching earlier episodes and wanting to figure out how it ends or whatever. So that makes perfect sense. Uh, what about you, uh, Alex Basso? Are you planning on checking this out? 
you know what? I, I might give the first episode a watch and see how I enjoy it. Because I definitely remember really enjoying the Acquisitions Inc. podcast I listened to. I just never... Uh, it was something I'd, I'd kind of been meaning to try and listen to, but now there's so many of them, and it's intimidating, and whoa, I don't I don't want to take all that time. So if they do a new series, I assume it'll probably, hopefully, not have too much, like, uh, I don't have to have too much investment in it to understand their characters or something like that. So I'll check out the first episode, and to me, I mostly am watching it to be entertained. I don't really need all the rules and stuff. I really dislike in these play podcasts if they have a lot of problems interpreting rules. So if it's quick and just, you know, funny and entertaining, then I'll stick with it. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, most of the podcast stuff that these guys do, you know, it's it's very sort of talking heads kind of things. You know, they, they like to sit there and they like to make lots of jokes. Um, so I do think it'll probably be a little bit more like the Adventure Zone, uh, which is great because that's a lot of, of what the Adventure Zone is and, is and that's a lot of why I, I like it. So, you know, I like... I like actual play when it's either super heavily edited uh, or it's basically a bunch of people sitting around telling jokes and telling a story. Uh, so what about you, Dan Elwell? Are you going to check out Acquisitions, Inc., the series? Uh, you said, you know, you've done more listening, not as much watching. So I'm wondering if the YouTube component of this kind of turns you off from it. Oh, no, it doesn't turn me off at all. I, I think, you know, I'll definitely give it a whirl. I mean, but I, but I think, as you were saying, I mean, it depends on kind of how this is gets edited for the medium. And I think if it's, if it's, if it's reasonably short so that, you know, I can fit it in and in and around other stuff, you know, that'd be great. You know, I would like to see, you know, frequent, you know, kind of shorter episodes and, 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 and tell the story over, over a period of time, just like you would kind of running a tabletop campaign. Um, you know, we'll just kind of see what they do with it. I mean, I think it's, it's just another avenue, I think, to, you know, expose audiences to the game. And if it drives more people to say, hey, that looks fun, I think I'll go check out this game. You know, more power to them. I'd, I'd love to see you draw more players into the game. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And that's that's the, the final question here I want to ask you guys is actually that. Um, do you guys think that this is bringing more players into the game. You know, we, we're seeing a lot of actual play happen now. Uh, obviously, we talked about Critical Role. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of podcasts out there. It seems like it's very popular amongst current D&D players. Uh, do you guys think this is actually bringing people into the game? I do feel like I've heard a lot of people say... Uh, you know, I heard the Penny Arcade guys play D&D, and then I wanted to start doing it. Um, you know, or I saw the community episode where they played D&D, which I know is an actual play, but, you know, and, and I wanted to do it. Is this the kind of thing that uh, you think is, is going to continue to help grow our, our little hobby? And if so, that would be awesome. Uh, why don't we start with you, Dan Elwell? Well, I think it certainly won't hurt. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the thing about it is it, if people do find this uh, online or whatever and they see cool people having fun doing something, you know, like this, then, you know, it may provoke some curiosity to go check it out. I, you know, how many pe new people are going to come into the hobby because of this? I, you know, I really don't know. Obviously the wizards thinks it's worth doing. So uh, obviously they've got some reason to, to want to, to wanna, uh, put the effort into this, but, you know, but as far as, as, you know, people come into the hobby, live play is certainly a way of showing people 
what the game is with no investment whatsoever, as opposed to showing up at a con or something like that where you can quickly be overwhelmed. So, yeah, I think it's all part of the puzzle in terms of, of kind of marketing the hobby, as it will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things I think that's really great about it is someone who does not understand what D&D is, you're able to say, like, well, here's what D&D is and, and send them a link, um, you know, and they can watch for, like, five minutes and be like, oh, okay, I understand how this game works now, you know, because it does take a while to be like, okay, so there are these players and you're not actually trying to win. You're trying to end these guys. And then there's this dungeon master guy. And, you know, I think it definitely helps you out to um, have some sort of visual example to show people. Uh, what do you think, uh, Daniel Franco? Uh, is this uh, helping bring new people into the hobby? I think, Marginally, I think the issue that Alex Basso uh, tapped into, just if they're looking at all the Penny Arcade stuff, it can be that overwhelming. So I would think more of friends of gamers who are interested. That'd be more of the market. But if you're like going to like the you know John, you know local John, you know he's looking in there, he's just like, what are these people? They're in costumes, and you know that's dumb. You know, so. I would believe, yeah, marginally, but it would be more of friends of gamers they're trying to get. And, like, some of the younger players getting into it would probably get more, you know, that kick out of it. I don't think it'll be, like, leaps and bounds uh, for recruiting purposes. Yeah, yeah, I think you are. Uh, it, you know, that's that's my uh, my fear is I don't know that it's going to turn anybody off um, more than, than, than somebody who would already be turned off, right, obviously. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah, I, I do hope that all, something comes out of this. Obviously, a lot of people are getting entertained, which is the, the first thing, so that's really good. Um, you know, it would be good to see this become a tool. I wonder if there's a way to make it super entertaining so you are locked in and you want to come back every week i think that for a lot of people that's how it is but I i'm wondering like how do you make that for even a larger group of people how do you make it even more appealing to get people who don't know how the game works to come in and watch and want to come back week after week because they're interested in the story uh alex Basso, what do you think do you think uh this is a great tool for growing the community i really don't know if it's going to grow it that much um, I mean, I feel like it's going to do a good job of attracting people who enjoy Penny Arcade to watch their show. And I'm sure most of the people who are watching this from Penny Arcade already know about D&D because they've been doing this for how long? Like seven. I feel like they've been doing it for like six, seven years now since fourth edition came out. Yeah. Yeah. They've. So, I mean, they said it's it's been a long, long time. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know how they're really going to bring in, you know, non Penny Arcade slash D&D fans. I mean, maybe on YouTube it'll show up as trending I, I don't know I'm, I'm not that great i don't know that much about how that works but I, overall i think it might bring more penny arcade fans into playing D, but it's not going to like significantly grow D. Well, we definitely want to know what people out there think. Are you excited for Acquisitions, Inc., the series? Uh, do you think that the rise of actual play is helping grow the hobby? Find us over at Facebook.com slash The Tome Show or in the show notes for this episode over at TheTomeShow.com. All right, gentlemen, I think that is going to do it for this week on The Roundtable. Alex Basso, where can people find you? So you can find me uh, on this the Tome Show Network. Uh, as a co-host of D&D VNG, a podcast where me, my brother, and a couple other panelists uh, play old-school D&D games and talk about them. You can also find me on my brother and James's new uh, 
radio play drama podcast, Have Spellbook Will Travel. Uh, I am a part of the ensemble, uh, voicing a bunch of minor characters, which is a lot of fun. As someone who, one of the only people on the cast who I think doesn't have any acting experience, it's it's quite enjoyable to make weird voices. Uh, <laughs> so check that out, and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at yo underscore Alex Basso. Yeah, Alex, you do a wonderful job as well, and I have to say, I think your bio is the best on our website, uh, so yes. people should uh, should definitely go check out HaveSpellbook.com. Uh, I told my brother to write whatever, and that's basically <laughs> how the conversation went before that. So. It was great. It was great. Uh, so, uh, Dan Elwell, where can people find you? Well, you can find me at Twitter, and my handle is at Dwellwell, at D-W-E-L-W-E-L-L. So yes, lots of L's and lots of W's, and just a shout out to Alex for the for the uh, have spellbook will travel uh, podcast. Listen to it this morning; it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to more episodes. Well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it, it is super super fun. That is really Rudy's baby. Um, he has done so much work. Alex can attest to it because uh, he is uh, his brother's roommate, so I'm sure he yes. sees often uh, the amount of work Rudy is is pouring into this thing, um, and it's definitely paying off. So it it sounds great. Uh, so yes, check that out, and also check out Dan. That, uh, Twitter is a great place to find him. That is where I found him. Uh, so uh, and he's a great dude so dan thank you so much for coming on the round table we will definitely be having you back on uh and uh daniel franco who will also be coming back to the round table daniel where can people find you uh facebook and twitter and i think i'm probably one of the people who has uh at daniel f and a bunch of numbers because i only did twitter like years ago when they did that um fourth edition join twitter and you'll get like cool updates for your game so i didn't even think about it and looking back at it now i'm like it's like a bunch of numbers and zeros, so I'll have to maybe post, you know, post a link or something if people are really <laughs> interested. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We will link it up over in the show notes uh, for this episode at thetomeshow.com. People can just click on your name, and it'll take them uh, right there. So shoot me an email with your Twitter handle in it, because I don't think I follow you, and uh, I should. So uh, as should all of the other wonderful listeners out there. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for joining me on the roundtable today, gentlemen. Thank Pleasure. you. And yes, awesome. Good Thanks. time. Uh, now, why don't we roll that interview with James Hake? Okay, everybody. Now I'm here with the one and only James Hake. Uh, you know him as a roundtable panelist. You know him as the editor of Insider. You probably know him as the author of some wonderful DMs Guild products. Today, he is talking to us about his DMs Guild product, Gem Dragons of Faerun that he made with a bunch of people over at Cobalt Press. James, thank you so much for coming to the roundtable today. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So let's talk a little bit about the Gem Dragons of Faerun. How did this come to be and how did you get involved in the project? I worked with uh, Cobalt Press around the very beginning of this year. They have their, um, I don't know if it's an annual contest, but they have contests year round to, uh, search for game designers and other freelancers to add to their, uh, roster artists, writers over a Kobold press. And the one that I worked on and ended up winning was, uh, a book of layers style, uh, lair, 
And that got me in touch with Wolfgang Bauer. And I, I decided as soon as that happened, well, if I, I, I want to keep my momentum going. And so I'll, I'll just, I'll just send a new query every month. And if something gets picked up, that's great. And so it was in February or the beginning of March. And I sent out a trio of pitches and, uh, Wolfgang said, "Oh, these are all these are all fairly interesting. Um, I, I like this one, and I and I pitched the idea some more to him, and he said, eh, actually, I don't think we can do that.' And so none of my pitches got picked up. But he he sent me an idea uh, spinning off of the one he liked most. Um, the that particular pitch was a an adventure that tied into Tyranny of Dragons uh, that I got the idea from reading an old AD and D source book." It was about a, a sapphire gem dragon living in the Underdark who had created this horde of magical scrying pools and portals to keep an eye on the cult of the dragon. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. And I wanted to, I wanted to build some kind of dungeon or mini-adventure around it. And while that didn't play out, it led to Wolfgang uh, pitching me the idea of creating a Monster Manual-style set of stat blocks for all five gem dragons. Nice. And that's exactly what this product is, right? We've got a ton of awesome dragons and there's some more stuff in addition to that. Why don't we go through the product real quick and you can sort of run down for me. What do people get when they buy gem dragons of Faerun? All right. Yeah. So the core of this product, of course, is that it's Let's see, four new stat blocks for each dragon, five types of dragons. There's at least 20 new monsters in here, plus a cool uh, golem uh, that's based on these dragons. Um, that's sort of siphoning the power of the great ruby dragon god Sardior. This is a, a CR8 Sardorian golem, which has got some pretty pretty cool mechanical underpinnings to it. Um and these these dragons range from you know CR two wormlings all the way up to a Tiamat level CR thirty uh, dragon god that I uh, had a great deal of fun creating. It's not every day that you get to make a CR thirty monster. No, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, talk to me a little bit about the CR thirty uh, gem dragon because I plan on throwing this dragon at my players at some point. Oh my gosh, you're poor players. <laughs> um, uh, so in Tyranny of Dragons, uh, at the end of Rise of Tiamat, uh, if your players are especially unlucky, they get to face off against the CR30 behemoth that is Tiamat. And she's got all sorts of crazy abilities. She got a gigantic pool of hit points, all that stuff. Um, but your players have ways to weaken her. Um, this is not the case with Sardior. Um, Sardior <laughs> it was an interesting design challenge because there's just not a lot of precedent for CR30 monsters. There's nope. Tiamat, there's the Terrask in the Monster Manual, and that's, that's kind of it. <laughs> and I so, would say even between those two, it seems like the power level is very different. Wildly different. Yeah. I, Tiamat's much stronger than the Terrask. Yeah, yeah, totally. That, I mean, that makes sense. If you're... If you're on a scale that's exclusively from 1 to 30, as we are in 5th edition, then there's going to be some variance anyway. CR30 challenges are, you know, they're, they're hard mode for any party, especially, you know, right. they can only go up to level 20. Yeah, essentially it means the Tarask and anything 
of equal or higher difficulty. The most interesting part of creating this monster was where to use what existed in the past as a template and where to try and break new ground. Um, Tiamat, as an individual creature, is probably still a lot tougher than Sardior. She has more hit points, I think her armor class is better, and she just has more damage output than he does. But uh, I think the most fun that I had uh, in making Sardior was using his legendary actions and his golem assistance and using his lair all as a way to beef up the challenge of his encounter. Um, so in in the research that I did on Sardior, because all of these gem dragons have a history dating back to uh, like Dragon Magazine number 30. So they've got, they've been around for a long, long time. Sardior lives in a palace that uh, flies through uh, the skies and across the plains. And it's made out of beautiful gems and uh, got floors of rosy quartz and stuff like that. One of Sardior's uh, legendary powers is that he summons golems uh, out of the floor uh, of his palace. His palace turns into an army to fight for him. Um, and so while he's, while he's in that lair, uh, just fighting a single dragon becomes a much bigger challenge than you might think. So my DMs guild products are things that I have edited and laid out, um, you know, found public domain art for, I did all the work myself. Uh, mm-hmm. but this is a super duper awesome professional, Product, You know, uh, you've got awesome people. As with all, I should mention, James Hake products on the DMs Guild. Uh, there's awesome people doing layout. There's awesome people making art for this thing. There are, uh, you know, publishers, Cobalt Presses involved. Uh, who else did you work with to, uh, to get this project off the ground? Um, actually... Uh, a lot of this this project, um, I didn't do a lot of collaborating at all. I did a lot of the research and all the writing myself. Um, I, I all of the words that you see in there are mine, largely unedited. I didn't have a whole lot of contact with uh, Wolfgang or the editors or the artists or the layout uh, artists. Um, so it, it, a l- little bit of a, a disconnect, but I'm sure that's uh, par for the course in any RPG product. And while on other things I made for the DMs Guild, I had more contact with the people I was working with. Like, since I didn't have a publisher to go through, <laughs> I would find my layout artist and I would find my artist from a pool of friends that I know. And uh, I would have someone I know personally do the editing. Um, it's, it's just a different process working as a freelancer uh, and a contractor instead of working as a publisher. For you, that's where a lot of what you've done is, as an editor, certainly at Insider, you're working with a lot of different people to get one awesome-looking article or adventure out every week. So that makes a lot of sense. When you're doing your thing here, then, with Wolfgang, you know, it sounds like you were pretty autonomous, and then you hand over a manuscript, and then it's like, great, James, we'll take it from here. Is that about right? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And I'm sure that uh, that is the experience that a lot of people, a lot of freelancers, whether they're writers or artists, have working in in the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it's for Cobalt Press, whether it's for uh, EN Publishing or Wizards of the Coast or Paizo, that's very much the same thing. 
uh, it's very interesting to see a publisher doing work on DMs Guild. I think it's I think it's great that that it's happening because it it allows people to gravitate around really strong uh, professional looking products. Um, but it, it it does seem to be different from maybe what the intent of the DMs Guild was going forward. I think the intent of the DMs Guild originally uh, was to, you know, get, it, it seems now that we're a few months away from its, uh, from its initial release, we can look back on it, is that it's a way for people who aren't affiliated with publishers, people are kind of just doing this for the fun and the love of it, uh, to, to get something out there and to maybe show the world what they've got. Um, and I think it's great that we have both voices on there. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's one of those things where if you want to do something that takes place in Faerun, right, this is the only option available to publishers True. at the moment other than, you know, hammering out some other <laughs> deal with with Wizards of the Coast. So I think it is great to see, you know, I, I want to know what is Cobalt Press, what is Green Ronin, what are these people going to do? In the Forgotten Realms, in Ravenloft, in whatever other settings and IP are to come to the DMs Guild, you know, what are they going to do? The Book of Mind Flares, right, could only mm -hmm. happen on the DMs Guild. Um, and it's cool to see, like, this is what Cobalt Press wanted to do that nobody at Wizards came and said to them, you know, you should make this Gem Dragon thing. They decided to make it on their own. So I, it is great to see that, and I hope we do see more products like that coming forth because it is a beautiful, well-made product. I love your writing. Um, you know, I, I these are more than stat blocks for dragons. These are some really, really cool adventure ideas. They're fun encounters that you have going on. They have unique powers, um, which I, was great to see. So kudos to you on the design for these. They look really fun to run. They look really fun to fight. Uh, so I think they look fun to role play and and to create stories and layers and stuff like that for. So you've you've really done no surprise an amazing job with these things, James. Um, oh, are, <laughs> are you uh, are you happy then with the way everything turned out? You know, you you turned in a manuscript and it was like, all right, well, I hope for the best. Obviously, if they've kept a lot of your words preserved that's good but are you happy with art and layout and and the product overall yeah i'm i'm very happy with it the layout is gorgeous i i love the design for this is it's yeah totally. one thing that that insider does really well is it does a very nice clean minimalist design and i i love that i think if i ever make uh, more DM skilled products. I mean, I mean, which I will when I make more DM skilled products. That's the design I seek to emulate. But Cobalt Press, Cobalt Press has got this incredibly beautiful uh, sort of trade dress design all around the edges of the pages. It has some of the cover art sneaking in through the margins. Beautiful stuff. Um, and one thing that Cobalt Press managed to do that I had no. Uh, idea could possibly happen is they sent this to Ed Greenwood, creator of the Forgotten Realms, <laughs> and he gave this thing a, a glowing review. I, I looked at that and I, I, I melted a little bit um, <laughs> because certainly I looked through some of the blog posts, I guess, and the, the articles that Ed wrote during third edition era about uh, dragons of Faerun 
Mm-hmm. And I, I combed through those because it, Gem Dragons has sort of an iconic dragon for each dragon type. Like for Amethyst Dragons, there's Eldenser, the worm who hides in blades. Mm-hmm. And uh, I give a couple of paragraph write-up about each one of these guys. And uh, I, I found Eldenser in a article that, that Ed wrote, and he loved it. It was so cool to see him talk about, you know, meeting an old friend again in these pages is incredibly gratifying. (laughs) Yeah, that is huge, huge. I mean, there's not a, it'd be harder to get a higher compliment, uh, from a better, uh, you know, a, a better qualified source than Ed Greenwood when you're writing something in the forgotten realms, right? That's for sure. So that that is, and it's well-earned. It's definitely well-earned. Uh, when you're looking back through old Dragon magazines and things like that, was that something you had to go and, and find the issues of? Did you go and buy those issues? Did Wolfgang mm. say, hey, here's a packet of stuff. Uh, look through this. And, you know, uh, did he say, here's a, I don't know, uh, what whatever the kids are searching on. uh <laughs> These days, uh, to look through magazine articles, was it something like that? Lexus Nexus, you know? Nexus is a great library, but no, there's no Dragon Magazine on Nexus <laughs> as far as I'm aware. Um, no, I started from I started from total scratch when I started this, and I think uh, many other freelancers, regardless of publishing house, would do the same. Um, fortunately, there are many magazines, uh, many issues of Dragon Magazine, freely archived online. Uh, I don't know if that's particularly legal, but uh, it's there with the Google search. So I was able to find the initial issue that Dragon Magazine was in. And uh, most of my uh, previous inspiration came from the Monster Manual 2 in 3rd edition. That's where I first saw them because I got my start in 3rd edition. I saw the Gem Dragons and thought, oh, well, these are cool. And I never used them. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I I was finally able to return and... uh, get something out of it. Uh, how old were you when you started playing D&D? I started playing D&D in my freshman year of high school. Okay. So it must have been 15, 16. I think uh, in the research that I did, I tried to cleave as closely to the way that 5e as a whole was designed because um, I was really present for all of Mike Merle's legend lore um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. blog posts during the playtesting process. I got a bunch of the playtest packets, um, and I didn't actually run any of the playtests. I just read through it and put my thoughts on it out there. Um, but I saw that throughout that process, they were trying to pull in design elements from as many editions of the game as possible. Like here, here's a here's a thing that stands out in my mind. People on N World commented about the Bone Devil. Right. When the Monster Manual came out and on its on its illustration, how ever since first edition or, or something like that, uh, the Bone Devil had like had lost its wings. Mm. The, the mm. Bone Devil originally had these dragonfly like wings, <laughs> and all through second through fourth edition, they didn't have it. But while fifth edition was being researched, they went back to the original illustrations and they saw that this thing looked almost completely different from when, uh, as it had been updated through the years. And they went back to that old design and they put a mishmash of stuff to create this new version of the monster. And that's what I did with these dragons. I looked through as much lore and design 
stat blocks uh, as much game design material uh, as I could, and I tried to make sort of the the ultimate cocktail of these gem dragons. And that's awesome. So you you really took that approach then to heart. You made you know D and D fifth edition was the addition to unite all editions. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you made the gem dragons to unite all gem dragons. Absolutely. The I think my favorite thing about the Gem Dragons, if I can, if I can talk about the design of it specifically, yeah. is um, so before this, um, before this fifth edition version of the Gem Dragons, uh, they were very much like normal dragons. There wasn't a whole lot to distinguish them other than the fact that they were a neutral, b were made of gemstones, and c lived somewhere else. Um, mechanically. Not too different. Um, so I, I threw in something that would distinguish all of them from one another and from the dragons that had come before. And I did that mostly through uh, breath weapons that did things more than just damage. And those were cool and all. But my favorite thing about the design is that instead of giving each of these dragons a frightful presence which is what uh, all the metallic and chromatic dragons in the monster manual have. They have, a, you know, they have a presence of fear around them. I gave each one of these dragons something different, uh, a magical aura that, in the case of the amethyst dragon, uh, calms all creatures around it. It's a soothing presence. In um, crystal dragons, they glow with uh, internal radiance, so they have a blinding presence when they choose to and uh, other things like that that give each one of these dragons a very unique feel when played as a combat encounter uh, instead of just a unique feel when played as a role-playing encounter. What was the challenge of that, really? You know, I I think one of the things you hear a lot of complaints about with 5th edition is that, you know, the monsters are stacks of hit points that deal damage and they they don't really change up that much between monster to monster. Uh, I don't know how true that actually is and I, you know, I think we could certainly get into that (coughs) on our podcast but I do think when you're trying to design a new monster in any role-playing game, the challenge is why am I designing this? Why is this different? How is it special? And I think you've definitely achieved that with each gem dragon. You know, you've made them interesting. You've, like I've said, they look really, really fun and unique to run in combat. Uh, how did you go about doing that then, given that past editions really, uh, you know, maybe had not done that before with gem dragons? Right. One of the things that helped was that dragons can be very high level when you get to it. There's a lot of space to design far out abilities (laughs) when you're dealing with, you know, CR 20, CR 15 monsters. Um, And and that certainly helped. Uh, Definitely the adult and ancient dragons have the most uh, toys to play with. But even uh, the the younger ones, even the, the ones that a lower level party might face, they have... They have things that set them apart from the pack. Um, when designing a new monster, you said it absolutely right. You have to find something that distinguishes them. And that's one thing I think 4th edition did really well, uh, even if it, even if people say that might have felt a little bit video gamey, that all monsters had a power, they had an ability that they were focused around. Well, I, I think that's good game design. Yep. I think, I mean, if, if your goblins are the same as your kobolds except for how, how they look, I don't know, what, what's the point of playing one over the other? You right, have to make yeah. something that's fun and different. 
Yeah, I I totally, totally agree. And I do think one of the fun things about 4th edition was, you know, when you wanted an orc, there were 17 different kinds of orcs to choose from. And each one was a surprise and had something that was going to maybe shock or scare the players in some way. Um, You know, and and it's great to see you bringing that into 5th edition, but still folding within to 5th edition so combat doesn't take six hours at 17. (laughs) Because, you know, they've got so many powers it doesn't make. They're so, they're unwieldy to run. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, this is a a awesome, awesome little product. I'm really excited that you brought it to us. Um, you know, obviously we're friends, so it, it made me really happy <laughs> to see your name on this product when it came out for that reason. But if I didn't know you at all, I would be super happy because you are one of my favorite designers out there. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, it is It is really great. People should also check out your other DMs Guild offering, uh, the Temple of the Shattered Minds. Um, That's right. We will link that in the show notes as well as Gem Dragons of Faerun for them to check out. Uh, it's on the DMs Guild. You can search for those things. You could come to the Tome Show and grab the affiliate link and look for them that way. Um, but if people want to find you, James Hake, what is the best way for them to do that? I'm, I'm most active on Twitter right now. You can find me, uh, James J. Hake. I guess there's an at sign before that, James J. Hake. Um, and I am always active on our Patreon page for uh, N-World Insider, our weekly 5th edition, uh, or our, our weekly, uh, what do you call it now? It's not an SRD, it's an OGL, OGL. product. I'm always responding to comments and uh, looking for looking for opinions there. And uh, if you want to, if you want to send me a pitch, something that you might want to see on Insider, uh, my email is Joey Hake, J O E Y H A E C K at gmail.com. I want to just a little bit of James Hake knowledge before we go. What's the story behind the Joey nickname? Uh, um, my full name is James Josiah Thatcher Hake, um, and my parents always called me Joey. Ah. So. James is a nice name to put on a cover of a book. Uh, Joey's a nice name to uh, to use in casual conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That is, um, uh, of all the names I've ever heard, definitely in the top ten badass. So, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you might want to just start putting your full name on all the products, right. uh, and then people will really know. So, <laughs> uh, that's a JJTH product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll, well, I'll join the the fantasy authors who abbreviate <laughs> names with J. That's right. Tolkien, Rowling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If you could get an R period R in the middle of there, <laughs> you're really then you're you're in the top tier of of fantasy <laughs> authors. So uh, your Georges, your Js, that kind yeah. Of thing. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and big thanks to Wolfgang Power and all the kobold crew for helping me make this product yes and thanks to them for getting it out there to us uh people should definitely check it out and pick it up it's a great product it's useful at any level of the game you're playing throw a different dragon at your players see how they react Uh, have fun running these 
And before we go, there's a final segment we've started doing here on the roundtable. We're highlighting a different DMs Guild product every week. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from Kent David Kelly. It's called Spawning Pool of the Elder Things. It's a colossal 620-page compendium that contains the largest, most comprehensive, and most ambitious monster creation system ever devised. If you feel that your game has been suffering from a lack of variety of monsters and encounters, if you want straightforward help and guidance in refining your own monster concepts, or if you just want to inject some cool old-school, Gygax-inspired, Arnisonian, and Lovecraftian monsters into your modern fantasy RPG, then this is the perfect resource for you. Tap into the chaos, fear, and madness of the Elder Things to animate, twitch, and galvanize your game. For 620 pages, Spawning Pool of the Elder Things is only four. 99. That is a steal, people. There is a direct link over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Go pick up Kent David Kelly's latest masterpiece. Thanks to my guests, Alex Basso, Dan Elwell, Daniel Franco, and James Hake. All right, everybody, you can reach me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there. Also, I want to thank everybody who checked out Have Spellbook, Will Travel. More episodes are coming. Rudy and I are so excited. If you haven't yet, go look at HaveSpellbook.com. People really seem to like the podcast. Maybe you will, too, if you haven't checked it out. More goodness is coming. I think you're going to like what we got in store for you. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to The Roundtable. Roundtable.